0: دوال و بی پایان اوست که نجات می و میرهانه، و اتوک کارهای شگفتنگید در آسمان و زمین انجام می دهد که دانیال را از چنگ شیران نجات داد. Good morning, South Valley. You guys came to worship today, and I sure love to see that. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you are new, I just want to say welcome. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you want to fill out a connect card, we'd love to connect with you after the service. We'll send you a gift card to Starbucks, get you some coffee, and we just want to follow up with you. Thanks for joining us today. We are in a sermon series titled Life in the den last week we covered 49 verses we did that thing right we totally did it it was not easy we made it today is a little easier but it's still kind of long because today is 30 verses so i'm going to pray we're going to jump straight into this thing we pray with me father god i thank you so much for another morning to praise you to worship you to begin our weeks by hearing from you Speak this morning, we are yours, we gather in your name Jesus, when we lift up this t- day to you. we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen, all right, so let's start with a little bit of recap. Daniel, life in the den, Chapter one. We learned that in 605 BC Daniel and a group of teenagers around the age of fourteen were kidnapped, and then they were exiled to a foreign land by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. This happened 605 BC. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. And when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, he turned it into a vassal state. He forced the exiles to walk 700 miles on foot away from their homeland, located in modern-day Iraq, which was ancient Babylon. And once in Babylon, they were reprogrammed. Their names were changed, they were forced into a government-mandated re-education program, and they were even castrated. Every time I say, say that, I see about half of you squirm. And yes, that was a very bad day. All of this happened to say one thing, your life belongs to Babylon. Well, Daniel and his friends... Not only did they survive this initiation process, but once in Babylon, they succeeded in everything they put their hands to. They were ten times better than everybody else because they leaned on the Lord. They trusted in the Lord. They received grace from the Lord. I want you to know if you lean on the Lord, you trust the Lord, you will excel at everything you put your hand to. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's one of the principles that we see in this story. Well, in chapter 2, which is what, what we covered last week, Daniel and his buddies, they faced their first real life or death crisis. Because King Nebuchadnezzar, he had a nightmare... And this nightmare haunted him day and night. He knew it was a vision of the future, so he demanded that his spiritual advisors tell him not only what the dream meant, but the dream itself. And this was not some usual nightmare. This was something he knew it was strange and unordinary, and then it had to do with the future. And and we talked about nightmares. You guys ever have nightmares? I had one last night. My nightmare last night was that I showed up to church 45 minutes into the service. Luckily, I had my clothes on this time, though, okay? So, that was my nightmare last night. Yeah, it was, it was scary. Uh, I woke up. I'm like, okay, no, I'm, I'm good. I made it in time. So, a nightmare. So, he gets his spiritual advisors, and he's like, hey, guys, tell me what this nightmare meant. Daniel and his friends, they go to the God of heaven to discover the dream, while the Babylonians, they search for the answers in the stars using Astrology and the occult, they forget the fact that heaven is God's throne and the earth is God's footstool. And so Daniel and his friends, they pray, they, they come before God, and God reveals the vision to Daniel. And Daniel gets a vision of this statue. We talked about this last week. This statue, it's made up of five different parts. And it represents five different kingdoms in succession, historical kingdoms. The Babylonian Empire represented by Nebuchadnezzar. Following Nebuchadnezzar would be the Medo-Persians, following them would be the Greeks, following them would be the Romans, and during the Roman Empire, a stone not cut with hands representing Jesus Christ, the rock of ages would come under the Roman Empire and begin to build a kingdom that would become a mountain, and guess what? If you belong to Jesus today, you are part of that movement that was prophesied in Daniel. Yes. So that's where we're at in the story so far. It's important to fill you in because in chapter 3, we are going to fast forward 20 years in these guys' lives. So these 14-year-olds are now in their mid-30s. They're in their mid-30s, and they're under a king who is still struggling with the fact that he is not the king of the world, but Jesus is the king of the world. And he's haunted by that thought. He's haunted by the thought that maybe one day that dream might actually come true and his kingdom and his rule might actually come to an end. And so you know what Nebuchadnezzar does in Daniel chapter 3? He attempts to rewrite history. He saw a statue in his dream. And so he decides he's going to build his own statue. Now, what part of that statue represented Nebuchadnezzar? You guys remember on the screen there, the head of what? Head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what? I'm going to rewrite the story. Because I'm not going to just, I'm not going to make a statue made of different parts. I'm going to make one statue made of gold, and the likeness of that statue is going to be me. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to change history in Daniel chapter 3. So, let's go ahead and turn now to Daniel chapter 3. Today's sermon is titled Jesus in Babylon, Daniel chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. It says King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather his satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and there he, he herald, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, Now, I'm sure you've noticed this already. But evil leaders love to rule people through fear. We've seen this countless times in history. History has repeated this episode over and over and over. Again, you think of guys like Adolf Hitler. You think of guys like Joseph Stalin, Stalin, Chairman Mao, these different you think of people who radicalized religion like Saddam Hussein. Leaders throughout history, one way that evil leaders rule in history is they rule through fear. Because fear is the easiest way to control a population. One term that we've heard used over and over again over the last three years is this weird word fear-mongering. You guys been hearing that word quite a bit? Maybe on social media or maybe on the news? Fear-mongering is the action of intentionally trying to make people afraid of something. The reason people do something called fear-mongering is because fear is a tool used to force people into subjection. And so Nebuchadnezzar, having this vast kingdom, wanting to keep his kingdom intact not wanting to lose any of his power or the power of his throne, he decides he has this brilliant idea. He is going to unite all of his people under one God. He's conquered all these nations. They all have different gods. One way he's going to control the people is he's going to unite them under one God, and that God is none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he erected a 90-foot tall statue of gold and he forced everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship it or die. Now, do you know what every dictator, one trait every dictator shares in common? It's this one word, narcissism. Every dictator on the planet, every evil ruler who has ever ruled on the planet, has shared this one trait in common, narcissism. Psychologist says it this way, Seth Norum, he says, dictators see themselves as very special people, deserving of admiration, and consequently have difficulty empathizing with the feelings and needs of others. Not only do dictators commonly show a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, they also tend to behave with a vindictiveness often observed in narcissistic personality disorder. Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist. Adolf Hitler, narcissist. Joseph Stalin, narcissist. Saddam Hussein, narcissist. Kim Jong-un, narcissist. One thing I want you to see as we talk about historical events in the past History continues to repeat itself over and over and over and over again. And one way that evil rulers rule is by striking fear in the hearts of the people. And if the people don't listen, if the people don't bow, if the people don't respond exactly how they want them to respond, then they have a choice, bow down or die. And that's exactly what was happening at this phase of Nebuchadnezzar's rule in his kingdom in Babylon. He was a narcissist. Now, I think it's rather obvious, it's easy to judge a narcissist, but I think it's it's obvious that you and I, all of us, as human beings, we are tempted to make life about us. Have you noticed that? How many selfies do you have in your phone? Actually, don't tell me. We tend to make life about us. The first time I realized this was when I was about seven years old. I didn't realize how selfish I was, and still today how selfish I can be, but I realized it for the first time when I was seven. One Easter, my mom got me and my brother some uh, Spider-Man toys for Easter, and so we woke up in the morning, we had a little Easter basket, and one Easter basket had a Spider-Man in it, and the other Easter basket basket had a Doc Ock in it. And so when I saw the baskets, I'm like, surely mine is the Spider-Man. But she's all, no, no, you get Doc Ock. I'm like, what? Doc Ock? But I'm the big brother. I shouldn't get Doc. I should get spider Like, that's a ripoff. That's like giving him in and out and me McDonald's. That's not even fair. (laughs) And so I'm trying to negotiate with my mom that I deserve Doc Ock, because I'm the, or I deserve Spider-Man, because I'm the oldest in the family, and my little brother should get Doc Ock, and and, and I really wanted Spider-Man. I was a fan of Spider-Man. Nothing much has changed. I'm still a fan of Spider-Man today, and I pouted. Let me just show you really quick. Here's my family. I I thought I'd show you this. Okay, so these are my my siblings. I wanted to show you this, because I performed my sister's wedding last night down in Palmdale. This is my sister, Shaylee. Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) So I'm the oldest in my family. Being the oldest, though, I was pretty selfish. Because sometimes in those moments, I thought, hey, I should get the best stuff because I'm the man in the house. I deserve it. These are all my younger siblings. I'm the oldest. And so this is my brother, Tyler, who got Spider-Man. I got Doc Ock. I pouted about it. I'm still bitter with Tyler about it. (laughs) But it hit me that night. I remember this at seven years old. It was the first time I realized How selfish I could be. My mom, who loves me, who thinks of me, who goes out of her way to show her kindness to me and demonstrate her love for me, gave me a gift. And because it wasn't the gift I liked, I pouted. You and I, we all struggle with selfishness. We all struggle at times with narcissism. Narcissism is about your glory, your pleasure, your appearance, your superiority. It's the exact opposite of living for the glory of God. That word narcissism comes from a Greek uh, legend about a guy named Narcissus. Narcissus was a hunter and he was a very handsome hunter and one day his arch rival wanted to defeat Narcissus and so he led him over to a pool. And when, and when Narcissus saw his reflection in the pool, he was so enamored by himself. He was so, like, look at that handsome guy. He was so in awe of himself that he remained at that pool looking at his reflection until he died. That's the story of Narcissus. And where we get the term Narcissism. Well, here's the thing, Narcissism... Selfishness, being too self-absorbed, could actually poison you. It could poison you from the inside out. Nebuchadnezzar in this story was being poisoned by personal glory. He organized a worship conference for himself. He organized a worship conference for himself, and his conference went pretty well except for one minor hiccup. While hundreds of thousands of people were bowing down on the plains of Dura, worshiping this golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, three guys were standing in the back. Hundreds of thousands are bowed down. Three guys remain standing alone in the back. So let's continue with our story. It says this, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward, and they maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews, only three. Hundreds of thousands of people are falling down in worship, but three guys, certain Jews, whom whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, they work for you. They work in your court. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in before him. So they brought these men in before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you are ready, I'll give you another chance here. When you hear the sound of the music, he says these instruments like 20 times. Let's move on, okay. Every kind of music, whatever song song I play for you, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to give you a second chance. When I play the song, fall down and worship. Worship the image of me that I've made. And if you do it, well and good. But if you don't worship, you'll immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? I'm the real deal. Who's going to save you? If, if you don't bow before me right here, right now, your life is in my hands. There's nothing you can do. And the God that you think you serve and worship has nothing to offer you because I am the king of all kings. Now, there are two things that stand out to me here in this section of the passage. The first is this. Where in the world is Daniel? Did you notice in this story that Daniel isn't mentioned? So Daniel is in every single chapter in the book of Daniel. It's a book named after him. He wrote the book. He's in every single chapter except for chapter 3. So people wonder, where is he? Well, there's a couple options here. One is he might have been sent away by the king to do official king's business, maybe in another nation. The other is we know that Daniel and the king actually built a strong bond. So maybe, possibly, King Nebuchadnezzar hid Daniel because he knew that that Daniel wasn't going to fall for this. Daniel wasn't going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew the real Nebuchadnezzar. We don't really know what was happening here, but Daniel wasn't present. It's the only chapter where he wasn't present. And so Daniel's friends had to face this trial alone. And what we read in the passage is that in Daniel's absence, the same Chaldean officials who had been spared from death 20 years earlier by Daniel and his friends. Remember, they prayed. They're the ones who got the vision of the dream and interpreted the dream. And because of God and their prayers, all those wise men were spared. Well, the same guys who were spared 20 years earlier now turned on the Hebrew men. We don't know if it's because they were jealous we don't, we don't totally know why they turned, but they turned on these guys, and now these three were standing alone without their fearless leader, and they had to respond, they had to react. And here's just a principle that I think is important to think about. The test of good leadership is the conduct of the people when the leader is absent. Did you know that? That's the test of good leadership. These guys didn't have a fearless leader to come behind at this moment. This was the worst time for Daniel to be gone. Like, Daniel, why did you say yes to the work trip right here, right now? We need you, man. We need you with us. We are in a life or death situation. I want to tell you, kids in the room, there are going to be times in your life where you're not going to have your parents there to help you make a decision. I want to tell you that are following a strong leader or somebody that you respect, that you admire, there are going to be times in your life where you're not going to be able to get that person on the phone or be able to respond in in a way that's going to give you a chance to bounce ideas off of somebody else. Sometimes you are going to be alone in your decision making. The question is this, are you prepared to make the right decision? With whatever comes your way, even if you're alone, Even if it's just you and God and the world coming after you, are you prepared in that moment to make the right choice? These guys didn't have their leader, but they were ready to make the right choice. The second question that I was pondering when I read this passage is why not just bow down? It's just a statue. It's just a government mandate. Just an edict from the king. Why not just listen? Why not just say, all right, king, we respect you and your authority, and so we're just gonna bow down and do exactly what you tell us to do. You see, up to this point, Daniel and his friends, they have been loyal, model citizens of Babylon. Even though they were kidnapped, even though they were renamed, even though they were castrated. They had good reason to not respect the king. Very good reason to not respect the king. But up to this point, they spoke well of the king. They spoke well of the nation. They sought the good of the nation that they were serving, even though they were serving a wicked king. But why, at this point, do they refuse? Why refuse to bow down? Well, because good Jews, good Christians would think back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we get something called the Ten Commandments, right? What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other what? Gods before me. What's commandment number two? You shall not make for yourself a carved image, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So here's the thing. These guys knew... That their job in Babylon was to serve a king and to be about the the good of the king and the good of the kingdom. But they also knew that they served a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar. If you belong to Jesus today, I want you to know that you you serve a greater king, a greater ruler than any other ruler on this planet. Did you know that? You serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so here's a really challenging, and and this is kind of a timely thing to think about, and I'm not trying to be controversial here. I just want you to see that there's an important principle to learn in this passage, and it's this. Be a good citizen until you can't be a good Christian. That's what they had to wrestle with. You see, I could be a good citizen of Babylon until you make me worship you. You. Be a good citizen until you can't be a good Christian. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to force worship on the outside by imposing his will. And that's what dictators do. They they force people to, to worship them, to obey them. But you know what a dictator cannot do? A dictator cannot force somebody to love them. You see, Jesus is very different because instead of imposing his will, he proposes He offers his love. Greg, who just married my sister yesterday, he didn't impose his love on Shaley, or we would have have gotten rid of Greg, okay? (laughs) He would have been gone. He got on his knee, and he proposed. You see, Jesus is a different ruler, different kind of ruler, because even though he's the one who has the, the kingdom and the glory and the throne that will last forever, he proposes to you he he's not looking just for an outward sign of you bowing down to him. He's actually looking at your heart. He wants your love and your affection, and so he proposes to you. God's worshipers are different than any other worshipers in the world because they worship from the inside out. They start here from the inside out, and what happens on the inside then makes its way to the outside. Dictators are all concerned about you obeying and and keeping control over you. God is concerned about this. Do you love me? That's his concern. Jesus today is proposing to you. And here's the thing. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you will worship something or someone else in God's creation. And the reason why you will worship something is because you and I are made to worship. That's part of our DNA as human beings. God created us with a natural inclination within us to worship. To find our worth and our value in something else, in somebody else, and the person that we're called to find our worth and value in is God because God made you, God loves you, God says he's for you, God says you're beautiful, you are made in the image of God, God is with you, he loves you all the way to the cross and up to heaven. Okay, that's the God who made you. But here's the thing, yeah. If you don't worship him, you're going to worship something else. Have you ever heard the expression, you are what you eat? I tell my kids this all the time. I'm like, Blake, if you eat junk, you're going to feel like junk. If you eat good food, you're going to feel good. It's totally up to you. And if you eat in and out, you'll be happy every day of your life. You get, you get the choice, okay? You get the choice. The same could be said with worship. You are what you worship. You're going to reflect The thing that you worship. You're going to reflect the person that you worship. If you're worshiping stuff, it's going to be reflected in how you live your life, how you use your finances, how you spend your time. If you worship yourself, it's going to be evidenced in how you present yourself and how you think of yourself and how you treat others. If you worship God, It's going to be evidenced because when you worship God, you become like God. We know that God is loving and gracious and faithful and loyal and just. And so when you worship God, you too begin to embody the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because you are what you worship. You naturally reflect it. And true worshipers, we see in this story, true worshipers of God always put God first, even when it's hard. So, what happened next when they refused to worship the king? It says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have any need to answer you in this matter. you giving given us a second chance to worship you? Uh, okay, you, we don't need to talk to you about this because if this be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Our our minds are made up. We don't need a second chance. He's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was, was filled with fury. Okay, you don't say no to a dictator. You don't say no to a narcissist. Guys like Nebuchadnezzar aren't used to the word no. And so he's filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times. Okay, this is just kind of unnecessary, because how hot does fire really have to be to do the, do the job? He doesn't have to do that. But he's so mad, the temperature of the fire is represented by the, the, the boiling in his soul and the anger that he feels towards these three guys. So he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men his strong guys, to bind them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks. He he was in a hurry, like, we're going to do this right now. You do not defy a dictator. Binds them up right then and there, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated the the flame of the fire, killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was so hot... The king accidentally killed his own soldiers in the process, trying to throw these men into the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning, fiery furnace. Now some people, they read this story and they ask, where in the world did this furnace come from? Why does Nebuchadnezzar just have a furnace in his backyard? What did he need in order to build a 90-foot statue of gold? A furnace. I don't know if you know this, but gold takes about 2,000 degrees for it to melt. So this was a very, very hot furnace. And although the friends had a second chance to bow down, they refused without being disrespectful. They were heroic and they stood up to the most powerful king on the planet there was no need for them to consider his second chance offer they've already made up their minds they would never bow down to a false image they were going to stand firm on their convictions they were going to worship God and him alone but in this moment they uttered some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible they said this our God King Nebuchadnezzar he can save us not only that our God he will save us if he wants to But even if he doesn't, we'll worship him. Yeah. This is true worship. True worship. We worship a God that that made us and loves us. We don't worship him just because we want results in our lives. We worship him because he's worthy of our worship no matter what we are facing, no matter what we are going through. There are a couple things I want you to see here. The first is our God can. I want you to know, South Valley today, I don't know what you might be going through, what you might be facing in your marriage or with your kids or with your finances or with your health or whatever you might be facing anxiety wise in this world. God can save you. He can save your marriage. He can heal your body. He can deliver you from your trials. He can cure your anxiety. He can fix your finances. He could bring your wayward child home. God can do that, and He does do that. And for many of you in this room, if you trust Him and lean, into him and believe in him he will come through for you in ways that you never even imagined keep trusting keep believing one foot in front of the other because our God can can I get an amen Amen. he can and most of the time he does but if he doesn't worship him he can do all of those things that you're longing for in your life. All of those things that you want to see happen in your world or with your kids or with your family. If you trust him, if you believe him, if you put him first, he can, he will, he often does. But if he doesn't, worship him. You see, this is where the American church has gone sideways. Because the American church often sees God as a genie in a bottle. And I'll worship him when things are good, and I'll worship him when it makes sense. But as soon as things don't make sense, I don't know if I could trust him anymore. You see what I loved about these young men, 33 years old, 34 years old, not totally sure, mid-30s. They are looking at a furnace heated up to 2,000 degrees and more than that because the king is very angry. They know that they are likely going to go into this flame and this will be their last day on planet earth. All they have to do is bow down. All they have to do is worship a king. What, they go ask for forgiveness later, right? Not in their mind. They will trust God to the end even if the end is death. You see, sometimes God saves us from our circumstances. Other times, God saves us through our circumstances. And this is reminiscent of Jesus himself. Because if you guys remember Jesus's words in the garden right before he went to the cross, the night before, he's saying this. He's doing the same thing with God. Father, if you're willing, please remove the cup from me. I don't want to suffer this way. I don't want to go through the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had to go through the cross. Sometimes you have to go through the fire. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Sometimes you get to fly over it. Other times you get snatched from it other times you got to go through it and here's the thing with the fire there are two things that can happen to you in the fire the fire is either going to strengthen you and purify you what did what happens when you heat up gold what you if you've ever learned about this when you heat up gold to a certain temperature the dross rises to the surface All of the impurities in the gold rise to the surface. This is what Nebuchadnezzar would have been doing with his statue as he built this giant statue. He would have wanted the purest gold in his statue. So all the impurities rise to the surface and they're scraped away. And then they rise to the surface and they're scraped away. And so here's the thing. The furnace, if you're in a furnace today, if you're going through a trial today, your furnace in life, it's either going to purify you or it's going to destroy you. It all depends on you. It depends on your own mindset and trusting the Lord, relying on Him. Will you be purified by your furnace or will you be destroyed by your furnace? What is the furnace in your life? What kind of fiery furnace are you facing today? Nebuchadnezzar, he turned up the heat seven times, and sometimes this world will do the very same for you. I don't know what your furnace is this morning, but what I want you to know one thing that's crystal clear is God cares more about the condition of your soul than your comfort and your safety in this world. That's why his people were in Babylon. He cared more that they would be brought back to him than that they would live with ease in Israel. Sometimes Jesus will deliver you from suffering. Other times he'll deliver you through suffering. Sometimes he'll deliver you from death. Other times he will deliver you through death. These men were resolved. Whatever way God delivers us, even if we die, we will still be delivered because we will stand in glory before the Lord. That was their hope. This is a reminder to be brave be brave, South Valley, in the face of suffering. Be brave. Don't give up. Don't give in. We've already, already talked about this. Jesus wins. Be brave in the face of suffering. I came across this cool uh, exchange of letters between a dad and his son in World War I. And, and the dad learned that every night as, as mom was putting the son to, to bed and he was away at war, he learned that his son every night was praying for his dad's, for dad's safety. And so he's writing these letters to his son, and he writes these words, and they, just, uh, they kind of brought a tear to my eye the first time I read them. He said, son, mom says that you continue to pray for my safety every night when she puts you to bed. Thank you, son. But what I want you to know is this. The prayer that I really want you to pray for me is not God keep daddy safe, but God make daddy brave. Life and death, they don't matter. Right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful, too bad for words. Be brave, South Valley. I don't know what you're going through today, but you're not alone in it. Because what do we read at the end of this story? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire alone, but they are met by somebody in that fire. There was another in the fire. Look at what the rest of the passage says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. King never gets up from his throne, but he sees Something, he jumps up from his throne and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Like, hey guys, did you get this wrong? I thought we, I thought we said three. What's going on here? They answered and said to the king, true king, yeah. We, they pulled out their clipboards, yeah, three. You said three, we put three in there. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound." The ropes of Babylon are no longer around their wrists and they're walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Isn't that interesting? Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace to take a peek and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the kings, every every you know ruler has to have some kind of title in his kingdom, right? They all come, the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not even singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god therefore i make a decree any people nation or language that speaks anything against the god of shadrach meshach and abednego shall be torn limb from limb okay so he's not converted yet all right he's still he's worshiping god but he still wants to tear someone apart if he can. That's like his go-to thing. Like just waiting for that moment, all right? So he's not converted yet. He's still worshipping Yahweh, but not there yet. And their houses will be laid to ruins. I'm gonna tear you apart and tear your house down if you don't worship Yahweh. So that's that's not how we do it around here, okay? I told you Jesus proposes, he doesn't impose. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. There was another in the fire, yeah. There was another in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar described this being. This is a miracle. And I just want to tell you, miracles do happen. Miracles aren't things that happen every day, all the time. And that's because they're miracles, okay? And oftentimes, miracles in the Bible happened to validate a message. These men were making clear a new message that Nebuchadnezzar was worshiping a false God and that Nebuchadnezzar was, in fact, a false God. And to prove that they were worshiping the true God, God came through while they were in the midst of the fire. And the God who came through was like a son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar said. He almost got it right. Because he wasn't just like a son of the gods. He was the son of God. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. We call this in theology, a theophany, God showing up. This isn't Jesus's first appearance in the Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus is the eternal son of God. And because of that, he often comes through for his people. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus wrestling with Jacob. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus standing before Joshua in Jericho with a sword in his hand. And now in Daniel, Jesus appears in the fires of Babylon. Why? Because here's the message for you, South Valley. Why would this happen? Because when believers go through fiery trials, Christ Jesus is right there with them. That's the message for you today. Sometimes you're going to have to stand up. Sometimes you're going to have to refuse to be like everybody else. Sometimes you're going to have to reject worshiping or bowing down to somebody who appears more powerful than you in that moment. That may isolate you. That may mean persecution for you. That may mean trials for you. But no matter what trial you find yourself in, Jesus Christ will be right there with you. Because Jesus is with his people. He is with his people when they need it most. You know what's crazy about this story is that Jesus doesn't come up and stop before the fire, they're thrown into the fire. He comes up and helps the moment they're in the fire. And that is often how God works in our lives. He allows, he delivers, he saves, he changes, but he often allows us to go through the furnace Because in the furnace, we learn the most about ourselves, we learn the most about God, and it's a testing for us. Will we trust him? Will we rely on him? And if we will, he will be right there beside us, helping us all the way through. Sometimes he saves us from the fire, other times he saves us through the fire. And so South Valley, have you determined in your heart that you're gonna put God first no matter the cost? We have to make that decision today. Not in the moment, we have to decide in advance. These three men stood while hundreds of thousands bowed because they knew they were not going to worship somebody else. And they determined that long before this moment came, we serve a real king, not a counterfeit king. We belong to a lasting kingdom, not a temporary kingdom. We don't bow to the pressures of society. We bow to the one who loves us and has proposed his his love to us and invites us in and he's inviting you in to his kingdom here today. Jesus loves you. Jesus is for you. And I wanna read one more passage. I just thought I'd share this today. I read it this morning. The book of Revelation, I'm gonna save that one for just a moment. Book of Revelation alludes to Daniel chapter three. And it talks about a time in history where the nations are gonna be deceived into bowing. And so this is why you have to decide in advance. Do you bow or do you not bow? This is what it says, Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. This is the false prophet. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, and he required of the earth and its people to worship the first beast. He was then permitted to give life to the statue. He set up a statue. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without this mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, his number is 666. God promises another Nebuchadnezzar episode. In history, there will be another statue. There will be another moment where you you will be forced, God's people will be forced with the decision, do I bow down or do I stay standing? One thing I want you to know today, South Valley, is that if you bow before Jesus, you can stand before anybody. If you bow before Jesus, you can stand before anybody. So I want to give you a chance right now to bow your heart before the Lord by participating in communion. If you'd like uh, the communion emblems, go ahead and raise your hand up high. If you didn't get one, we have some ushers ready to hand them out to you. Just raise it up high if you need one. Just so you know, the top of this, the bread is in there. Some people ask, where's the bread? It's a little wafer in there. It tastes like cardboard. That's the bread, okay? Very top. Communion is a time where we bow. It's time where we say, Jesus, I worship you and no one else. Jesus came to save us from a fiery furnace. Talks about it in Matthew 13, using the same language as Daniel. He came to give you life. He came to give you hope. So I want to encourage you right now in this moment to bow before him remember his broken body and his shed blood, and then I'll lead us in the emblems together. Go ahead and take a moment to quiet your hearts. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's remember Jesus' body broken for us. And he took a cup after supper, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember Jesus' blood. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you. We don't put any other gods before you. You are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. And when this world comes our way and it demands us to worship something else, today we decide we will stand. We will stand when it's hard. We will stand when it hurts. We thank you for delivering us from the fire. We thank you for delivering us through the fire. We thank you for being with us, saving us, making a way for us. We thank you, God, for being with us when it's tough, when it's hard. You don't turn your back on us. You are for us. You are not against us. Remind us of that this week. Be with this church. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, South Valley, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. I hope you have an amazing Sunday. Can't wait to see you guys again next week. If you need prayer, come and talk to us. God bless. Have a great day.